Well, good morning, Sixth Avenue Community Church. My name is Dave Russell. I serve as the pastor at Oakhurst Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is my first time in Decatur, Alabama. It is so good to be with you, but I've heard so many good reports from your pastor about evidence of God's grace in this church. I want you to know we have been praying for you at Oakhurst Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. I, I saw the pictures on social media of the fire at your church building. We prayed for you that next Sunday morning in a pastoral prayer. Uh, your pastor, Sean, who I, I love, Sean and Amber, we crossed paths in Washington, D.C. back in 2011, very briefly, at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and, and we've stayed connected in our pastoral network over the years. But Pastor Sean took me through your property yesterday, and I, I trust the Lord will end up bringing a blessing out of that trial and, and terrible situation, a blessing out of it. First off, what a, what a great plan B you have this morning. It's a joy to gather here, uh, but a blessing out of that that would serve this ministry for years to come, Lord willing. Amen. Well, it's good to be here this morning. We have elders and members of our church at Oakhurst Baptist Church. We're an hour behind you guys, uh, so they're probably, let's see, it's, it's yeah, they're, they're probably right now wrapping up the service. We actually had two baptisms today, so they're probably in the middle of those baptisms right now, but I know they've been praying for our time here this morning. Let me bow and lead us in prayer for our time right now. Please bow with me. Father in heaven, what a gift it is to gather as your people in the name of your son Jesus on this Sunday morning and to remember that morning that Jesus got up from the dead. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would cause our minds and hearts to look to Christ. Lord, to find hope in his death and his resurrection. For those this morning, the members of this church, for all who've repented and believed in Jesus, Lord, that we would be stirred up by way of reminder this morning. Lord, we ask you would stir us up in our affections this morning, that we'd be reminded of the hope that we've been given in Jesus, that we would rejoice in him, that whatever trial it is that we're presently enduring, that we bring in this morning, Lord, that you would meet us in that trial, that you'd remind us of your love and your care for us in Christ. Lord, what more do we need than what you've already provided for us in your son Jesus? The forgiveness of sins, free righteousness from your throne, your Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us as a deposit, as a guarantee of your love for us and your commitment to cause us to endure until we go to be with you or until you send your son Jesus back down to earth, which we hope happens first, Lord. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would turn our, our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who do not yet know you. I pray you'd open up their hearts to receive the beauty and the glory and the power of your son, Jesus Christ, and the forgiveness of sins. That would happen for some here today. Lord, I thank you for the honor it is to preach your word. Lord, I pray you would help me to preach faithfully help me to preach what's true help me to preach joyfully and clearly that christ would be exalted lord keep me from saying anything that's unhelpful I pray you'd meet me in my deficiencies as a preacher lord that you'd bring yourself glory and comfort to your people and salvation to the lost here this morning we ask that in the name of jesus amen what do you need most coming in this morning what's a burden that's on your mind on your heart maybe there's financial burdens that you bear and you think this one i need more money maybe you're struggling through unemployment or underemployment and you feel that pressing need 
you know, our trials, the burdens, the daily challenges that we face in this life, they often get interpreted in our minds as, as need. I need housing costs to come down. I need a new job. Russell just prayed for those in physical challenges this morning. Perhaps you've come in this morning and you've been to the doctor recently and you've left with more questions than you've had answers. Or that medication, that treatment that's been prescribed to you by the doctor, it's not kicking in. It's not working the way that you had been praying that it would work. It's not working as quickly. And you feel the need for some physical relief of your burdens this morning. You know, those desperate situations, they can seem to pile up at times and weigh us down and challenge us in our faith. Yet in all of those burdens, we're invited to call out to Jesus for help. We're going to look at the Gospel of Luke this morning. One of the things that's interesting when you go through the Gospel of Luke, there's people crying out to Jesus in all sorts of desperate situations. Uh, People who are, are physically suffering and they see Jesus. People in hopeless situations and when they see Jesus and believe that he's the Son of God, they're filled with hope and they cry out to him. And Jesus does not ignore their cries for help, even in those physical challenges. He shows compassion. He shows care. Yet at the same time, what's so interesting is that he always points them above those challenges to their greatest need. That their greatest need, the greatest need you and I have, the greatest need of the people that he was speaking with is God. You need God. You need to be forgiven of your sins against God. You need righteousness that can only come from his throne. You need salvation from your sin, salvation from God's wrath and his right judgment against sin. You see, if you're here this morning, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, The needs you have, I don't mean to make light of those. They're real. Those trials are real. Those burdens, they really weigh you down. They're really difficult. I'm so grateful that God has given you a church family here, members of Sixth Avenue Community Church, church family to bear one another's burdens. But what we've needed most, our burdens to be borne by Jesus, the Son of God, we can look this morning back to the cross, back to the empty tomb. We can rejoice and find comfort that God has already met our greatest need in Christ. Our sins have been forgiven. What more do we need than what we've already received? And he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so we come and submit our burdens to Jesus. You know, these desperate situations, they, they matter in our lives. Imagine this. Imagine if you were paralyzed and you couldn't come to church today. At home in your bed, you couldn't come to church, you couldn't move any portion of your body. That's a desperate situation. Imagine if you had a disease where you were placed in quarantine indefinitely. You had to leave your home. You couldn't be around your family members and your friends. You were cut off from your faith family. You couldn't be here at at church. Uh, There was no cure for that particular disease. How would Jesus make a difference in that situation? Well, we get to read about that this morning. In fact, we've already heard it read by Mary Beth in Luke chapter 5. So we're going to turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 5, where we see that exact situation people in desperate situations and we see how Jesus showed care and compassion at the same time pointed to himself as the one who would deliver you from your greatest problem if you haven't already
So turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 26 this morning. The best way to stay engaged with this sermon is to open up a copy of the Bible and just follow along with us as we make our way from verse 1 all the way through verse 26. And I want to give you the main idea up front if you're taking notes this morning. Here's the main idea that I want you to see in this passage. Jesus has the power and authority to call and cleanse sinners. It's the main idea, just to sum it up in one sentence, Jesus has the power and authority to call and cleanse sinners. Luke is the longest book of the New Testament. His other volume, the book of Acts, is second volume. That's actually the second longest book in the New Testament in terms of content. So between Luke and and Acts, Luke wrote 27.5% of the New Testament. So to know the New Testament is to know the writing of Luke. Now, the New Testament book, it's a gospel. It's really unlike any other genre of Scripture. So certainly, it's historical narrative, but this is a gospel. Anybody know what that word gospel means? Good news. So this isn't meant to be a biography with all sorts of details about the life of Jesus. It's meant to give an account of the good news of Jesus, who Jesus is and what he came to do. So when you look through the gospel, uh, it kind of picks up with the birth of Jesus. We get a, a few details about his conception, about his birth, and then it moves very quickly on to he's 12 years of age. And we get a little detail there of Jesus there in the temple of Jerusalem, the temple complex. And then it moves very quickly to age 30 public ministry where we pick up this morning. You see, the point of a gospel is not to give us all of the details about the life of Jesus where we have a biography. The point of the gospel is to make its way very quickly to the cross and the empty tomb, showing who Jesus is, the Son of God, and what he came to do. He came to save. He came to die. He came to lay his life down willingly as a substitute on the cross, and he came to rise again, showing us he is who he said he was. He is the Son of God. In him there is forgiveness of sins and new life to anyone who would repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. As we look to Jesus, the goal of this gospel for you this morning, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, is to turn and trust in him as your only hope to know the God who created you, the God that you've sinned against, the only way to be forgiven of your sins. But also the gospel is for the believer. Maybe you heard it said the gospel is not merely the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian. It is the Christian life. And Luke wrote this orderly account of the gospel, Christian, to encourage you, to comfort you in your faith, to help you grow in your conviction of who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he's already accomplished for you. That the greatest work that needed to be done has already been finished. And we look forward to that day. It's completed when Christ returns again. Amen? Let's take a look at this passage. In Luke 5, we see the public ministry of Jesus and his power and his authority exercised in different situations. So we see this with a leper and with a paralytic. First, we'll see it when he calls his disciples, in particular, Simon Peter. All of this reveals the power given to Jesus on earth as the Son of God. So I want to break this main idea up into two points for our outline this morning. This outline expounds on the main idea in two points. The first point we see in verses 1 through 11, the power to call and commission followers. So we see about Jesus in verses 1 through 11, the power to call 
and commission followers. So the beginning of Luke 5 records Jesus calling his first disciples. And while James and John are mentioned here in this passage, Luke focuses in on the calling of, of Simon, whom Jesus would later name Peter. So the occasion for Jesus calling his disciples happens as Jesus is preaching around the Sea of Galilee. So that region of Galilee is where Jesus focused most of his ministry here on earth. It was a a bustling center around a big lake. You see there in verse 1, this body of water is called the Lake of Gennesaret, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee, which you might be more familiar with. This was a major source of livelihood. Uh, Fish was a regular part of people's diet. This was an important place. And this is one of the most densely populated areas of Israel. It's where Jesus launched his ministry to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's where crowds gathered to hear him preach. And notice here in verse 1 that Luke refers to Jesus' message as the word of God. Jesus spoke with authority as the son of God. Jesus didn't just talk about God. He is God. And therefore, he spoke as God. Here in Luke 5, we see the authority of Jesus by his word to call and to commission disciples. So this story of of Simon Peter being called as a disciple helps us know what it looks like for us to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus who joyfully follows Jesus by faith, called and commissioned by Jesus, not in the same exact way way that Simon Peter was but indeed if you're here this morning as a Christian you've been called individually by name that was determined in eternity past whatever your testimony is is a a testimony a story of God's marvelous grace in saving you you've received a call you've received a commission as a Christian to know and follow Jesus and to participate in his great ministry of redemption You see, there's a pattern in the story. Jesus teaches the word of God. There's a miracle involving a tremendous catch of fish. And this results in faith and following Jesus or discipleship. So first we see Jesus taught on the shore of the sea. But then he got into Simon's boat. And we read there in verse 3, he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Sitting down, that's the posture of a Jewish rabbi teaching. So he's sitting down in Simon Peter's boat, teaching, his voice echoing across the water there so that he can be heard by a crowd. He came to preach, to verbally proclaim good news of the kingdom of God coming near in himself. And after Jesus teaches, he commands Simon Peter there in verse 4, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon Peter, he responds to this command. This is a command, put out your nets. By the way, coming from a carpenter, not from a fisherman, Simon Peter responds by faith, not by sight. By sight, he says in verse 5 there, rather by, by, by faith, master, which is another way of saying rabbi, we toiled all night and took nothing. Now, fishing, it happens at night. The fish come in uh, closer to the shore in the evening. I'm not much of a fisherman. I fished back in the day and I remember my uncle would wake me up on Saturday mornings and I thought it was way too early. We would get out on the lake at like 7 a.m. and as a 15 year old I thought that was ridiculous. I didn't want to be up at 7 a.m. on a Saturday morning. That was my morning to sleep in and I thought that was really early but we get on the lake and guess what the true fishermen were doing. Some of you are true fishermen. They were coming off the lake at 7 a.m. 
the real fishing was happening at three in the morning, four in the morning. You know, during the day, uh, those fish would go back out to the deep water. So Simon Peter was done. They had fished all night. They toiled. They, they took nothing. And here's Jesus telling him, go ahead and put out in the deep in the middle of the daytime. And Simon Peter responds by faith, saying in verse 5, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I mean, first time discipleship. One who takes Jesus at his word. One who listens to the word of Jesus understands the authority and the power of Jesus and seeks to obey God and the word of Jesus Christ. You see, being a disciple involves hearing God's word, trusting God's word, and obeying God's word. Simon Peter hears, he trusts, he obeys. And from this moment of faith comes fruit, or rather, a lot of fish. So many fish that it threatens to sink his boat. Well, this is a miracle. It's not like Jesus just had like a a honey hole out there and he knew where they needed to go and drop the nets. After all, again, by trade, we understand, we believe at least that he was a carpenter. So it's not like he had some sort of insight or knew better than Simon Peter. Simon Peter, it seems like even in his initial response is thinking like, hey, we've already been there and done that. It was just a bad day. We took an L today. Like we didn't do well. We're letting our nets drive. We're gonna go on about our day. Jesus was not a fisherman but he's the son of God. And this is a miracle. He produced this miracle as one who has authority over creation. We don't know exactly how it happened, but Jesus told him to put his nets out there and it was so full of fish that it threatened to sink the boat. Think about how you would respond if you were in that situation. It may not be how Simon Peter responded there in verse eight. Look at his first response. He falls to his knees and cries out, depart from me for I am a sinful man Oh, Lord. Why would he respond like this? I mean, why not jumping up and down, elated at this miraculous catch? I I mean, this would have been a career accomplishment, something he would have dreamt of, something that he really desperately needed, and he receives this miracle, and he responds first off with the words, depart from me. Why would he respond like that? He recognized He was in the presence of the holy God, Jesus, truly God and truly man. Sounds a lot like Isaiah, what we heard read this morning, Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am ruined, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, sinful man in the presence of a holy God, immediately overwhelmed by the presence of the Holy One. In fact, Simon Peter, he's the first person in the Gospel of Luke to call Jesus Lord. A divine title so far in the Gospel of Luke that's only been used of God the Father. Simon Peter, the first one to call Jesus Lord. This is God, truly God, truly man. You see, Simon sees Jesus for who he is and therefore sees himself for who he is. This is the Holy One of God and I am sinful. I'm entirely unworthy to stand in his presence. You see, that's the judgment by which Christians must see themselves and esteem ourselves. We need to see ourselves through the lens of Christ, which you had this morning, a prayer of confession. And you know what's always followed by for Christians? An assurance of pardon. 
We should regularly be broken, wrecked over our sin against God. Christians, if you're a true Christian, uh, your sin grieves you. If you're growing as a Christian, your sin against God will increasingly grieve you. That it would grieve us to dishonor God in word, thought, or deed. That we don't want to grow comfortable with sin. And at the same time, we see ourselves the way Jesus does. Forgiven, saved by the blood of the Lamb. At the cross, all of our sins, past, present, and future, already paid for by Jesus. You see, Simon Peter sees himself in light of Jesus. Depart from me. I am completely unworthy. He's undone at the sight of Jesus, the Son of God. He tells Jesus, depart from me. But how does Jesus respond? Not only does Jesus not depart from Simon Peter, he calls him closer. Look there at the end of verse 10. He calls Simon to follow him. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Jesus has the authority as the Son of God to call and commission, and that's what he does right here. Follow me, he tells Simon Peter. Don't fear me. Follow me. He calls him closer into an intimate relationship of following after Jesus. And this commission... It's filled with a promise. You might be familiar with Matthew's account of the gospel. Matthew 4, 19. What does Jesus say? Come, follow me, and I will make you what? Fishers of men. So, so, so Luke here records some different words, the same moment, the same idea being communicated here. It's a commission. It's filled with a promise, a promise of how Christ, by his grace and power, will transform Simon Peter and the other disciple that he was calling there, he's going to turn Simon into something he was not. From a fisherman to a fisher of men. You see, the power of Christian ministry is not found in the messenger. It's found in Christ and the power of the message of the gospel. I think about this, this metaphor here of fishing. This wasn't Jesus really just kind of being relevant to somebody in their trade and trying to speak in terms that they would understand. There's, there's something deeper that's going on here. You see, Old Testament prophets would use the metaphor of fishing to communicate gathering people for judgment. In places like Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 16, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. This is, is highlighting gathering people for salvation in view of God's judgment. That's the kind of fishing of men that would take place. Gathering people to save them and deliver them from God's judgment. God is a judge. He is right to judge us for our sin. If you're a fish and you get caught, that is a bad thing. Unless someone catches and releases, which I know many of you fishermen do. But being caught as a fish, you become somebody's dinner. Fishing for men is the best thing that could happen to be caught. If you're a Christian, you've been caught in that net, being saved and rescued and delivered from the current that's heading directly toward God's judgment for sin. This commission to, to be a fisher of men, it's a commission to a new life, a commission to a, a new calling. And this commission is not just for Simon Peter. It wasn't merely just for James and John that were standing there with him. It's for all who follow Jesus. Sixth Avenue Community Church member, hear me clearly on this morning. I said this to my church just recently. If you're not fishing, not following. Part of our following of Jesus 
means together that we fish. Together we seek to verbally proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Together we pray for the salvation of those around us who are lost. That we have the same concern that Jesus does. We look out amongst the crowds and we have compassion. We see those who are lost not as disgusting, but as those who are in need of salvation and compassion and care. Those who need a shepherd and only can find that shepherd in Jesus. If we are to follow Jesus, we are to fish for the souls of people. Whose soul are you fishing for? If God saved who you were praying for this past week, who'd get saved this week? It's a question I ask myself all the time. Just as a way to encourage myself to pray more for life. If God answered my prayers from this week of who I was praying for that's lost, who would get saved? Keep praying. Keep proclaiming. We just had a, a Sunday evening service at our church uh, a little while back. We, we, we distributed cards. I was talking to Sean about this. He said, you all have done some similar things. But we just distributed cards on a Sunday evening, evangelistic prayer cards, had every member write down three names, of unbelievers that you're going to commit to over the next few months, praying for, seeking to start a gospel conversation with, and seek to invite them to a church service. We're going through the Gospel of Luke, so I'm recycling a sermon with you. We're, uh, we got Easter coming up. Uh, sometimes people who won't ordinarily come to church may come to church on Easter. Let's not shame them for that. Let's use that for the good of the gospel and try to use that as an opportunity to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We want to be praying. We Together we want to be fishing for the souls of people whose soul will you fish for this week i hope you talk to another member and pray with them pray together hold one another accountable and praying and seeking the salvation of our family and friends who don't know the lord well this call and commission it went to simon in the moment but we see in involves james and john the sons of zebedee they're his fishing partners they too are amazed recognize jesus as the son of god and they all respond to this call and commission look at verse 11 and when they had brought their boats to land they left everything and followed him simon James and John, they go on to form the core of the 12 disciples. This is a moment where Jesus is calling together these, these three key apostles who will go on to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. In other words, this is the beginning of the commissioning of gospel work and gospel ministry, a ministry that you and I have been impacted by, a ministry that's made its way to Decatur, Alabama. It started right here with a call and a commission from Jesus. Well, let me be clear. What's highlighted here in verse 11? What's amazing here is not the obedience of the disciples. That's important. That they must obey. That's an important thing to recognize. But what's highlighted is not necessarily their obedience. I think what's highlighted is the authority of Christ to call and to commission. What's highlighted is that Jesus, as the Son of God, has the power and the authority to call followers i mean consider a christian testimony a testimony is not about how much you gave up to follow jesus that, that's not the a highlight of a christian testimony. it's not about the, the risky or costly decision that you made to follow jesus the wise choice that that you made to, to, to go away from the path of folly rather a christian testimony marvels in the one who called you 
A Christian testimony rejoices in Christ who's saved you. A Christian testimony marvels at God and his amazing grace in Jesus that called you and led you to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And what Luke is showing here in this gospel, Jesus is God's promised Messiah filled with power and authority. What's so amazing here is not that they were following, but who they were following. Jesus, the Son of God. There's no one like him. Now don't skip over in verse 11 that they're following Jesus meant that they left everything behind to follow him. Everything. They left their livelihood, their business. In the Gospel of Matthew, you read that James and John left dad in the boat and got about following Jesus. But what's interesting is that they had to leave behind what they had just received from Jesus in this miracle. Think about it. The point of the miracle wasn't merely for them to gather lots of fish. The point of the miracle wasn't for them to have the catch of a lifetime. The point of the miracle wasn't for them to finish in the black at the end of the month and, and to have surpassed and set record goals as a business. The point of the miracle was to follow Jesus. And when I was studying through this, I, I just really never focused in on that detail. They left those fish. I, I really wondered what happened to them. I mean, who got, who inherited all that fish? The point wasn't the miracle. The point was the Lord over the miracle. And they left that miracle on the shore and followed Jesus because he alone is worthy. Now notice this transformation here. The transformation from Peter, depart from me, I am not worthy, to verse 11, Christ alone is worthy. Verse 8, depart from me, I'm not worthy. Verse 11, they left everything and followed Jesus. Christ alone is worthy. Both of those postures are necessary for following Jesus. For the for Christian discipleship, certainly your conversion in a moment was, I am not worthy. I've sinned against the God who created me. I have no claim of righteousness before the throne of God. I am entirely unworthy, but Christ is worthy. And you know what's going to encourage you in your discipleship to continue to follow Jesus? Is to meditate on and rejoice in how worthy Christ is. Raise your hand if you've heard of, of the missionary Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere? I would commend you to, to read uh, a biography. I don't know. Noel Piper actually wrote a biography on Helen Rosevere. I named my third child, my daughter Helen. My wife and I named our daughter after Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere was a man from Northern Ireland, and she was a, a doctor in a time where, in the, where she grew up and lived there in England. Not many women were able to advance in a medical career to become a medical doctor. She had a promising career ahead of her, and she left that career behind there in the UK to go and serve the Lord as a medical missionary in the Congo. She found herself serving there at a time when civil war broke out, and as a foreigner, she was captured and thrown in jail because they just were suspicious of a foreigner being there in the middle of a civil war. She hadn't done anything wrong. She was loving and serving and caring for people, caring for their physical needs and caring for their spiritual needs and pointing them to Jesus. And she shared a testimony with us back in 1998 when I was a college student, a sophomore. My wife, we weren't yet dating, but she was there present at that conference. And we heard Helen Rosevere get up and she shared about these, this dark season of her life where she was in prison and she was tortured her jaw was broken as she was physically beaten she went on in great detail to talk about 
the suffering that she endured, the horrific form of torture that she suffered as a young woman there in prison. And she said she sat there in prison one night in a dark moment and asked the question, was this worth it? What she could be doing back home in a comfortable life, in a promising career. And she's in prison, trapped, no hope, being tortured. Was this worth it? And she said the Lord corrected her in that moment. And she realized she was asking the wrong question. Another question came to her mind. Is he worthy? Is it worth it? There were some question marks, some doubt, some hesitation. She said, well, the question, is he worthy? The answer was clear. Of course he is. Of course the Lord is worthy. You're worthy of all glory. You're worthy of all of our lives. You, you've saved us. You laid down your life and you've, you've purchased us, redeemed us. Of course you're worthy, Lord. And she said that meditation of the worthiness of Christ is what caused her and aided her to endure that trial of which she was freed and able to resume life as a missionary. You see, I am unworthy. Christ alone is worthy. That's a posture of discipleship by which you'll grow as a Christian. Ask the Lord that you would live in light more and more of just how worthy Christ is of all of your life. Second point I want us to see this morning, verses 12 through 26, the power to cleanse and forgive sinners. Second part of what we see this morning in the story, the power to cleanse and forgive sinners. There in verses 12 through 26. Two more healing miracles in this section. First, the healing and cleansing of a leper. And second, the healing of a paralyzed man or a paralytic. Both healing miracles point to the power and authority that Jesus has to forgive sins. There's a spiritual reality in both of these physical conditions. So the power to heal and the power to forgive sins are, are intertwined in both of these stories. So let's look first at Jesus healing and cleansing the leper. Now, leprosy is more than a skin disease in its worst form. It affected not only the flesh, but the bones, the blood. It affected the whole person. It, it involved a tremendous amount of physical suffering. But in, in addition to the physical suffering of leprosy, it also involved the suffering of losing your whole life. You were placed in quarantine and sent outside of your home. You lost your job. You lost your home. You lost your family. You were sent away. You couldn't have contact with anyone because you were unclean. And leprosy, highly contagious, would spread to others and deem them unclean. You were cut off from your whole life and a forced quarantine for the rest of your life. So a leper was in a hopeless situation, outcast, no human cure for this disease, essentially a dead man walking. And what stands out here is that this hopeless man, when he sees Jesus, he immediately expresses hope. Look at verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus... He fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He had no hope from medicine or treatment. None of the priests in Israel, none of the rabbis could cure him. They could only declare somebody clean if indeed they were healed by God. But when he sees Jesus, he believes that Jesus can rescue him from this desperate and hopeless 
situation. His calling out to Jesus was an act of faith. It was an expression of, of hope. You can make me clean, Jesus. You are the only one. If you will, you are able and capable of doing this. Now, again, lepers were cut off from society. A leper was not permitted to approach people. And if that were to happen, if a leper were to approach you in Israel, it would be unthinkable to remain there and have a conversation with them. Your life in jeopardy, you'd need to get out of there. Jesus not only stands and talks with them, look at what he does. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now Jesus could have healed him with the word. It's what he does next with the paralytic. But he didn't use a word here. He touches him. He, he touches him with compassion. And with care. Again, that's dangerous. You touch a leper, you get leprosy. You touch someone ceremonially, religiously unclean, you become unclean. You now lose your life. But two things happen here when Jesus touches this leper. Uh, number one, Jesus remains clean, holy, pure, undefiled. And number two, the leper is immediately made clean. I mean, consider if you were standing there in the moment. This wasn't like Jesus touched him. And then like over the course of six months, wow, his skin is really clearing up. Like he's looking better. Like he's in better condition. No, immediately he's healed. Immediately the blemishes and the wounds and the awful looking disease, the ugliness of that disease that would just wreck shop on a human body, it's gone. He's healed. He's cured. He's made clean this healing revealed that king jesus and jesus alone has the power and the authority to reverse the effects of sin now while leprosy was not necessarily a punishment for sin leprosy like all disease and sickness came into the world through human sin death came into the world through the sin of Adam. It's been appointed unto each of us to die one day because of the curse of sin. So, so those there in Israel who heard this story, who saw this, it wouldn't have been lost on them, the spiritual lesson of this. You see, leprosy was often understood in that day as a visual picture of sin, cursed, cut off, so the spiritual reality of this healing, what was revealed in this healing is that Jesus has the power to reverse the effects of sin. Instead of sin spreading, his righteousness is what spreads and what covers over sin. Jesus and Jesus alone has the power and authority to conquer sin and prevail. Now Jesus heals this man, miraculous healing, and then he tells him, don't tell anyone. Why? I mean, it would seem like a good thing if the word spread. Well, Jesus came to preach the gospel, to call people to repent and to believe in him. Uh, public fame, it, it could possibly divert attention away from the very message that he came to preach. He wasn't out there merely to attract those who wanted to watch and to see miracles. He was out to call people to repent and to believe and to follow him. And if crowds grew, that would likely present an obstacle to people coming and hearing his preaching, which is what we see happen in the next miracle. But after healing this man, in keeping with the law of Moses, Jesus commands this man, go to a priest, 
The priest could not make the leper clean, but the priest could declare the leper clean, ceremonially, religiously. And when he does, the word spreads anyway. We see in verse 16, as the popularity of Jesus grew, so did his prayer time. He withdrew and he prayed. You see, Jesus has the power and the authority to make clean what is unclean. And for Christians, we understand there is no part of you that Jesus cannot make clean. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I think I can speak on behalf of Sean and everyone here. We're so glad that you're here, and I hope you come back next Sunday. Uh, Coming to a church is a wonderful place for you to be, to hear God's word, to learn more about who he is and what he's done in Jesus Christ and the salvation that is available to you today if you would repent and believe in Jesus. For some people, and likely some people here in Decatur, maybe even in this room this morning, there's this thought, Jesus, you can't possibly forgive me of all the bad I've done. Some people think there's so much bad I've done that I've not told any other human being, and God knows it, and he can't possibly forgive me of my sin. This story tells us that not only is Jesus capable of doing that, he's willing. He draws near to those who are cut off, those who are uh, succumbed to the curse of sin. Some of you think you've done too many bad things to be forgiven, and the call is that Jesus is willing to heal you if indeed you would repent and believe in him today. If you've come today and that's your question, I hope you don't leave here today without talking to someone. Talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to any member of Sixth Avenue Community Church. That might even be your mom or your dad that you're here with today. Talk to them of what it would look like to get right with God today, to put your faith in Jesus Christ today, to be cleansed and healed and forgiven by the healing power of Jesus today. You know, there's another group here this morning. Most of you are Christians, I trust, right? Most of the members of this church here would comprise those in attendance this morning. But some of you who are Christians, who've repented of your sins and received forgiveness in Jesus Christ, there's a big problem. And in most Christian counseling sections and biblical counseling sessions, this comes up. There's oftentimes Christians walk in shame and guilt of sin they've already repented of already received forgiveness of and that doesn't honor God walking in shame and in guilt for sin you've already repented of it's just inwardly focused as another form of pride and Christ would call you not to look in the mirror and gaze at yourself but look at the man Jesus Christ who's forgiven you and cleansed you and and healed you when Satan tempts you to despair from sin that you've already repented of look to Christ He's full of forgiveness and healing power and mercy. Don't allow the enemy, our adversary, the devil, and the powers of darkness to drag you back down into that sin that's already been paid for, that you've been set free from. Look to Christ where there is new life and forgiveness and hope. I wonder how you need to think about past sin this morning. I wonder where you need to trust the cleansing and healing power of Jesus. Are you weary of asking Christ for help in your sin? Are you weary of confessing your sin to Jesus? Are you weary of repenting? Do you have the wrong idea that the Christian life is where like you grow and you repent less and less? Which isn't true. Mature Christians repent more and more. Mature Christians see Christ more and more for who he is Therefore, see yourself for who you are, a sinner saved by the grace of God 
alone. Well, the second healing here in this section in verses 17 through 26, we see Jesus heals a paralytic. And here Jesus explicitly makes the connection between his power to heal and his power and authority to forgive sins. Now, Jesus, his popularity grew, the crowd, the size of the crowds grew to gather to hear him preach, which provided an obstacle for a group of four men who were bringing someone who was paralyzed to be healed by Jesus. They couldn't get into the house that Jesus was preaching in. Let's pick up there in verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were asking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. That was an act of faith on all of these men, including the man who was laying there on the mattress. Uh, we see Jesus commending his faith later. So them lowering him down through the roof on a bed was an act of faith. Their faith was seen in their persistence. They believed Jesus could heal this man. Now, now, growing up, my grandfather, I only knew him in a state of paralysis. He was paralyzed as far as I can remember when I was a young kid. Uh, the only part of his body he could move, he could smile, and his eyelids could bleed. He couldn't speak. He had multiple sclerosis. Uh, he was plagued by that disease. My grandmother took care of him. He was a big man. I get my height from him. He was a big guy uh, who was unable to move. And I thought about this in reading the story. If you would have told me and my brother and my cousins and my dad, my uncles, that there was someone who could heal my grandfather by telling we would have gotten him out of that house and taken him there. These men heard about Jesus, including the man on the mattress. They believed. Their faith was persistent. There were obstacles that got in the way, and they kept going, and they got up on the roof, and they lowered him down. And what stands out is not their persistence. That's important. What stands out is the person of Jesus. He's able. What happens next, it's a bit surprising. Look at how Jesus responds there in verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. Well, he came to get healed. He couldn't move. He's on a bed. And rather than make the man immediately walk, Jesus forgave his sins. The persistence to get this man to Jesus reflected this man's faith, and Jesus, seeing his faith by his grace, forgave his sins, which really was his greatest need. His greatest need was to be forgiven of his sins, not merely to get up and walk. What more do you need than your sins being forgiven by Jesus? Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were there in the crowd, they immediately understood what Jesus is saying here. God alone can forgive sins. For, for all sin is first and foremost an offense against a holy God. So, so what man could tell someone your sins are forgiven? Only God can do that. And in that sense, they were right. <laughs> but they failed to recognize Jesus is the Son of God. Look at verse 21. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? For Jesus to say that this man, that his sins were forgiven, that's an easier thing to say. 
You couldn't really prove that in the moment, that this guy's sins were forgiven. That was an, an inward and a spiritual reality. There's no way get, for people gathered to know for sure that this man was really forgiven in that moment. So when Jesus perceived the hearts of these Pharisees, he decided to make it abundantly clear that he indeed just forgave the sins of this man. He did this by giving visible proof. Look at verse 24. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. This man who was paralyzed immediately got up by the healing power of the words of Jesus. With man, that's not possible to do. This is the Son of God. Who else can cause a paralyzed man to walk merely by the power of his word? This must be God. You see, but there's something else that's not possible for a human to do, to forgive your sin against God. Kids, it's not possible for your parents to make you right with God. Their faith is meant to be an example and a witness to you. But their prayer for you is that you, if you haven't already, that one day you would repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, that Christ alone can make you right with God. It's not possible for anyone here. Your pastors can't do that for you. They can't declare your sins forgiven. Only Christ can do that through his blood shed on the cross, his payment for sin as a substitute in your place by laying his life down on the cross. You see, Jesus showed that he had the power to make a paralytic walk. He did that to demonstrate that he has the power and the authority on earth, the only one who has the power to forgive sins. Now, these Pharisees, they saw the miracle, but they didn't respond in faith. As a whole, they go on to reject Jesus. What about you? There's really only two responses you have to Jesus, to reject him or to receive him. If you're saying, no, not right now, that, that's another form of rejection. You either reject Jesus or you receive him. These Pharisees, what's interesting, and maybe this is, this is your question, but oftentimes when I share the gospel with someone, I've shared the gospel with a family member before, and he told me, you know, if I could just see these things, I would believe them. And I said, no, you wouldn't. The story of the Bible just tells us that time and time again. What more did Adam and Eve need to see to believe and put their faith in God? They rebelled against God. They saw everything. They lived in a perfect world. What more did the people of Israel need to see than when they were delivered from slavery out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb and they faced, themselves, they faced an impossible situation, Red Sea, Pharaoh coming after them to kill them. God opens up the Red Sea, saves them, delivers them. They turn around and see their enemy destroyed there, drowned by the waters of the Red Sea. And how long did it take to build a golden calf? And these Pharisees got to see Jesus heal a paralytic by the power of his word. What more would you need to see? But here's the situation. They didn't think they needed to be forgiven. Their sin wasn't that big of a deal. 
They were full of their own self-righteousness. They were doing just fine, if you will. They were just capable in and of themselves with their own obedience. Their self-righteousness in their mind was more than enough to make them acceptable before a holy God. They really didn't even care that much about God. They cared about the traditions of men. It was self-righteous. They weren't waiting for salvation. They weren't waiting for forgiveness. That is the heart of rejection. And I hope if you're here this morning, and you don't know Jesus, and you don't sense your need this morning to be forgiven, I hope you would take time to investigate this further. There is a third option, which I would commend you to. If you're not ready to put your faith in Jesus this morning, take some time with a member of this church to read through the Bible. You could pick up in the Gospel of Luke. Consider more who Jesus is and who he says you are in light of his holiness. There is still time to repent and believe, but time is passing. And I would urge you, I would plead with you, give yourself to looking to Christ that you would see who he is and who you are and put your faith in him. And for those who put their faith in Jesus, I hope this brings you great comfort. You know, sometimes we're so familiar with these stories that we're not encouraged and comforted in our faith in Jesus. You know, I hit the ground yesterday, first time in Decatur, Alabama, and I told Luke, I said, man, I want to come get some barbecue. I want some North Alabama barbecue. I'm from North Carolina. We do pork down there, but I know you guys roll with the chicken and white sauce here. And I said to him, I said, man, I've read about this place, Big Bob's, and I want to go to Big Bob's, and some of you are shaking your head, and, and this is what I'm talking about. I read the reviews, and they said the locals, some of them are hard on Big Bob, and they, they say, like, it's the out-of-town people that come. I went to Big Bob's yesterday, and I'm not familiar with Big Bob's, so I just came and realized this dude invented white sauce. I want to go try this in person. I loved it, man. I love that chicken. I love the white sauce, the mac and cheese, and the collard greens were on point. It was fantastic. Luke didn't tell me about the peanut butter pie, so I didn't get a piece. Maybe I can get one on the way to the airport. You're so familiar, you don't care about Big Most of you don't care about Big Bob's. I went around last night and heard up people prefer wits or whatever else. So it's like, you're familiar. It doesn't stand out to you as something marvelous. I'm from out of town. I have no idea about this. To me, it stood out. I took a picture of the sign and sent it home to my kids. Sometimes in Christian circles, we get so familiar with these stories. You've maybe taught from this. You've maybe heard from this. And this is just so familiar that you're not comforted and encouraged in your faith. And let me suggest to you that familiarity often can be one of the greatest obstacles to us growing in our faith. We become so familiar with the things that we heard that we're not marveling at who Jesus is. I've heard these stories time and time again, and studying them marveling at the power of Jesus to touch and to cleanse sinners, marveling that he saved me, marveling that he gathers churches, that I can leave Charlotte, where my church, I love to worship, and come here with a body of believers, and you all are doing the same things we do on Sunday morning, praising Jesus in the same way. This felt like home to me today because you worship the same Jesus and marvel in the same one that we all praise and prize. I would beg of you, Christian, don't start this week off. Sunday morning is an opportunity anew. The first morning of the week, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, and maybe your prayer today as a Christian is, Lord, help me not to be so familiar with the things of the Lord that I'm not growing in my faith in Jesus. Would we look to God and ask him to renew our love for Christ, to renew our knowledge of his deep love and amazing grace to us? 
He is the one full of power and authority. His name is Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the one that rules and reigns on high, the name that is above all names. And Christian, he is the one who has condescended to love you and to die for you and to serve you. And the Spirit of Christ is with you always, even to the end of the age. And that is more than enough for what we need today. Amen. Let's bow and ask the Lord now to comfort us in our faith. Father in heaven, we turn now after seeing this word, reading this word, hearing about Jesus. And Lord, we ask that as those who are in Christ, that you would comfort us in our faith, Lord, that we would be renewed in our awe and standing in awe of of the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the power and the compassion of the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for any that are here this morning that do not yet know you, Lord, we pray you'd open up their hearts to receive Jesus and believe in him. Lord, help us not to be so familiar with the things of Jesus that we're not comforted and encouraged in our faith. And help us to be those who are concerned about what Jesus is concerned about, his glory amongst the nations. Help us to be those this week that are committed to following Jesus by fishing for the souls of others. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.